0: Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border immigration and other legal issues. I'm Steve Murins. Uh, Today on the show we are discussing Section 361c and Section 362c of Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And these provisions provide that someone is inadmissible to Canada if they have committed an offence abroad that has a similar or equivalent uh, offence in a federal, under a federal act of parliament. And the discussion today, there's different, you know, topics that arise from this including how equivalency is assessed and the difference between federal and provincial offences. But what we are focusing on today is what the standard is for determining whether someone committed an offence where there is no conviction. And our guest today is Sonia Chowdhury. Uh, Sonia used to work for as an associate at uh, Raj Sharma's firm. Raj is a previous guest on the podcast. And she was lead counsel in a recently released decision, Garcia v. Canada Citizenship and Immigration, uh, which was 2021 FC 141 as the neutral citation. And this case involved, as you can probably guess, somebody who was determined to be inadmissible to Canada because of a crime that in this case uh, was dismissed but nonetheless a visa official found that they had committed the offense even there, though, even though there was no conviction um, Sonia currently works for the Real Estate Council of Alberta. If you like the podcast please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find me on Twitter at at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S so at Smurrens. Deanna isn't on Twitter but you can email her at Deanna D-E-A-N-N-A at McCrayLaw.ca uh, Once again I hope you enjoy the show <laughs> Section 36 sub 1 of Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act provides that a permanent resident or foreign national is inadmissible on grounds of serious criminality for C, committing an act outside of Canada that is an offence in the place where it was committed, and that if committed in Canada would constitute an offence under an act of parliament punishable by a maximum term of imprisonment of at least 10 years. Section 32C of the same act, the ERPA, provides that a foreign national is inadmissible on grounds of criminality for committing an act outside of Canada that is an offence in the place where it was committed, and that if committed in Canada, would constitute an indictable offence under an act of Parliament. These two provisions are generally known as inadmissibility for committing an offence outside of Canada. And that is going to be what we talk about today. And we are joined by Sonia Chowdhury, who currently works as a barrister and solicitor at the Real Estate Council of Alberta, which she just joined. But right before joining it, she was an associate at, I don't even know the name of his firm. I just call it Raj Sharma's firm, (laughs) um, where she won a case in federal court involving this issue. And as soon as I read the case... I thought this would be a great podcast topic because it gets into the whole area that I don't think a lot of people know about, which is when you can be inadmissible to Canada, even if you weren't convicted of a crime, you can still be inadmissible to Canada for criminality. So Sonia, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and why?
2: I think this is one of the most common misnomers when clients call you and they say, yeah, I wasn't convicted. Or they say, we didn't tell you about this uh, thing because it was just a misdemeanor. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, from the American clientele where they -hmm. figure that something is irrelevant if it didn't lead to a criminal um, conviction. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, just in terms of the, the audience, if it's um, you know, if somebody is trying to consult with Immigration Council in order to get appropriate advice, uh, giving the Immigration Council the fullest possible explanation <laughs> about one's one's uh, criminal background, even situations that did not lead to uh, a criminal conviction of any sort is really imperative. And that's really going to be the focus of our session today. Uh, this explains why. Yeah. Um, but it really is probably Um, maybe the one the the biggest um, misconception I think in the immigration field if I'm not overstating that Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so I think as a an order for today's podcast what we'll do is almost a case study law school style of Garcia (laughs) v Canada Citizenship and Immigration Canada 2021 FC 141 um, which was Sonia's case and then maybe go through the enforcement manual section on committing an act and when it can result in inadmissibility and provide comments on the way. Because I know Deanna, um, well, I think all of us have dealt with this issue before, and it's always surprising mm-hmm. the first time it arises, and then mm-hmm. it kind of just gets annoying thereafter. <laughs> so why don't we start with uh, Garcia? So sure. So why don't, if you could uh, walk us through maybe the facts first.
1: Sure. So Garcia involved um, Laura Beth, So she she applied for permanent residence as a mem- resident as a, a member of the live-in caregiver class, um, but she was refused because her husband was found criminally inadmissible. Uh, she's from the Philippines, and basically the husband had gotten into a bar fight in the Philippines back in 2006 that resulted in dismissed charges um, that were, you know still relied upon by the Manila office to um, deny Laura Beth's PR. Um, She was given a PFL opportunity um, and her lawyer, her former lawyer at that time didn't respond, uh, but I guess it just wasn't good enough for the visa office. Um, Important in the facts in this are that um, the way this bar fight went down was that her husband and his friend were stabbed first by the complainant. And then they deny causing any bodily harm to the complainant. And so first, her husband did a case against, um, lodged a complaint against the complainant uh, for, you know, stabbing him. Uh, and then the complainant countersued, and 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 you know, so the prosecutor was prosecuting both things. Um, so there was a lot of conflicting evidence here that pointed to perhaps the offense not happening, like that her husband probably never. Attack the other guy or that her husband was acting in self-defense. So that was kind of the context there. Um, At the end, or kind of after a few years of this going through the Filipino courts, the um, complainant who was complaining against her husband uh, swore an affidavit of desistance. Uh, So he swore an affidavit of desistance and the wording of that affidavit became really important at the federal court uh, when I was doing my argument, uh, because in that affidavit, uh, the complaint basically stated that um, that the, the husband never had the intention to kill or injure him, that he kind of had a misapprehension of the facts, that he would not testify against him. And if he were to testify, he would testify in his favor so as to avoid perjury. Um, so it was a pretty clear affidavit of assistance. Um, and also important to note was that the the prosecutor's only evidence against Laura Beth's husband was the statement of um, this complainant. There was no video uh, or witness testimony that could have confirmed that, you know, her husband actually did this. Uh, so obviously the prosecutor dropped it. Um, but that wasn't good enough for the MLB's office. When we explained all that in the PFL um, response, they still denied it. And it's important to note, so in their denial of it, they they did this like blanket statement about, "I've reviewed the 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 court documents, and you know it supports that this um there's a, like it's reasonable grounds that an offense did occur," um without explaining what in the documents that they relied upon because. From our detailed review of the documents, it actually points in the opposite direction. Um, And then they, uh, this was particularly important as well, Um, in their reasoning, they said, it's a common practice in the Philippines to settle outside of court because of how lengthy the trial procedures are, Um, therefore, uh, like I'm of the opinion that this was just a settlement and the the offense did occur. Uh, That was never put to us in, in the initial um, PFL request. Um, so we never had a chance to respond to that. Um, moreover, there was no evidence whatsoever in the record of any settlement. Um, so, you know, with all that back pattern there, we, we, we JR'd the refusal and, and we were successful.
0: Yeah, I wanna just take a minute to read the GCMS notes, the Global, which are the Global Case Management System notes. Um, you've referenced some of it but I think it's helpful Mm -hmm. uh, for people to hear about how these refusals lead or read Um, and so it's in paragraph 21 of the decision and I'll just read it quote this is the officer speaking I had already taken note of the dismissal of the case during the initial criminality review nonetheless an affidavit of desistance executed by the complainant does not necessarily mean that the act Joresi was accused of was not committed by him. Given the lengthy process of trial in the Philippines, it is common practice to settle cases outside of the court. If all parties are amenable to the terms of the settlement, the workaround is for the complainant to execute an affidavit of desistance stating that they misunderstood the facts and that they were no longer willing to pursue with the case. This is in view of having the case dismissed for reason that there will no longer be a witness to testify in court and the accused guilt can therefore not be established beyond reasonable doubt. Therefore, despite the dismissal, the officer must still thoroughly review the circumstances that led to the filing of the charge, including the evidence that have been submitted in order to make an accurate admissibility assessment. I have considered the reply to the procedural fairness letter. However, the information included therein does not change my assessment of the criminality of principal applicant's spouse. Based on the information before me, I am satisfied that Dorelli is criminally inadmissible to Canada under one c
1: mm-hmm.
0: There's so much in there that oh, and that's the oh, decision. Yeah. There's so <laughs> yeah. much in there that it's so uh, bad. Yeah, like it's so really terrible. In your judicial review, uh, maybe we before we because there's so much in there that I want to talk mm-hmm. about. Uh in the judicial review you were successful so what was the judges I mean we all have our own critiques of this what did the judge uh, ultimately find
1: so the judge focused kind of on Vavilov's intelligibility and transparency of reasons so he said you know it says here that you've considered the reply to procedural fairness and the you know the evidence before you but there's no explanation here why the the officer relies upon certain pieces of the evidence over others, right? So the officer relies upon the initial laying of the charge and the initial complaint by the complainant, but then discounts or doesn't believe the affidavit of desistance or the affidavits of um, Laura Beth's husband and, and his friends that all, you know, who were present in the, in the bar fight that say that this didn't happen. So first thing is, why are you relying on certain pieces of the evidence over others? And you can, but you have to explain. So there's no explanation here of that. Um, and then the other thing um, that was mentioned was that um, there wasn't a proper, obviously, as you can see from here, a proper criminal equivalency analysis. Um, you know, the the officer, the police officer just stated the, what the um, provision was. Um, I'm not sure if it's in these reasons, but there, there was a, um, portion in the reasons where they basically just listed what the provision is and then said, "Yeah, I'm satisfied; it's equivalent." Um, so there was no actual assessment of comparing the wording of the two um, Canadian offence and the Filipino offence, um, as well as they didn't consider at all the self defence component because under Canadian law, obviously, self defence is a is a um, is a uh, full defence to assault causing bodily harm. Um, and in this case, if you look through the documents that were in the CTR and all those things, there's a repeated mention that that um, the the complainant uh, attacked them first and that they were acting in self defense. And even in the prosecutor's report, the prosecutor says there's a argument for a defense of self defense, but that's better addressed at trial. So, you know, there's all that there that just wasn't addressed in these reasons. Um, and and Justice McAfee does a really good job of kind of going through in detail and, and, and talking about that in his decision. Um, and also uh, another point of procedural fairness as well. So the the part in the reasons where it talks about the common practice to settle cases outside of court, that's kind of some specialized knowledge that was never put um, to Laura Beth uh, in, in the, the PFL Request and and um, Justice McAfee, uh says in his decision that um, that's a breach of her of procedural fairness because it was a material uh, point that was relied upon in 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 the decision and she had never been given a chance to respond to it.
0: Yeah, you can hear the uh, the passion.
1: Yeah, I'm just yeah. I was so. <laughs>
0: Raj must be sad that he lost you. The Real Estate Council of Alberta better realize that uh,
2: yeah, he's a sure. potential
0: star of the immigration bar. Oh. Uh, like, yeah, I'm very so,
2: passionate about yeah. this case. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah,
0: no. that,
2: sorry, I just, I feel that um, with these cases, to me, it's very important to go back to what the purpose of these provisions is supposed mm-hmm. to be. And when you look at the admissibility provisions as a whole, Mm -hmm. what they're intended to capture is that really, um, you know, if somebody had been convicted in Canada, they will have gone through an entire trial. There will have been you know, um, a judge or a jury who will have been given them, you know, they will have, their case will have gone through the rigors of, you know, a trial, Um, you know, they will have been given these kind of procedurally fair opportunities to state their defense and go through this entire um, hearing process. And if it is determined at that stage that they are um, that they are guilty of the offense, then at that point, they're found to be criminally inadmissible. Right. The reason why the committing provisions exist is because there's supposed to be some recognition that in certain jurisdictions, um, the, pros- the, the, you know, the prosecutorial body doesn't have the either the means mm-hmm. or the will to prosecute every single case. And so mm-hmm. the committing provisions have been designed Because like, let's say in a place like the Philippines, they don't have the money and they don't have the will to prosecute Mm -hmm. every single case. So Mm -hmm. the function is supposed to be that if they're out of court settlements that make these prosecutions go away, that they still don't want to cause guilty people to be allowed to come into Canada. Mm -hmm. But again, it doesn't mean that just because there has been a case that every single person should be captured. So
1: that's exactly it. Like in this case, there was no evidence whatsoever of settlement and still the officer relied on that. Um, like I know there's the, I I don't know the citation for this, but there's the Urdas case where, where the federal court did find that it was reasonable, uh, even though it was a dismissed charge because there was clear evidence of settlement. Like there was, there was settlement agreement there. It was clear evidence that the event occurred. There was witnesses that confirmed the event did occur. Uh, and then there was settlement. And so in that case, it makes sense to still go ahead with finding the person criminally inadmissible, but I mean, in I've noticed in the Manila visa office they just don't care.
2: Just because (laughs) this occurs, just because there may be corruption, just because there may be a pattern, you can't just paint use that brush to paint every single situation no. especially when there's like a body of evidence to the contrary and right. I mean thank goodness that we have Vavilov that kind of jurisprudence to say like no 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 you can't just say because this may be a practice in some cases that you can then impugn any future case you know right like, exactly. that's not a thing
0: well and do you remember the in the last uh, podcast that we did Deanna when we were talking yeah. about Chu I talked about how at a uh, immigration appeal division stay of removal appeal that i was involved in yeah bsa said uh honorable member i know you're not explicitly allowed to consider dismissed charges or pending charges but if you could keep those in the back of your mind while you're making the determination and the member immediately cut that off and said that's not permissible Mm -hmm. yeah exactly Um, but in the foreign context that's almost what goes on with types of an admissibility decision. Well,
2: this is why these two provisions um, scare and frustrate me so badly is because it feels like they almost invite this kind of behavior because not only do they give the visa offices the power to be the judge and the jury, Mm -hmm. um, they actually they invite a much lower standard. It's not the criminal standard of, you know, um, the criminal standard, you know, um, if if this person had been entitled to a jury trial, yeah. um, it would have been the criminal standard that applied, you know, mm-hmm. the um, but in, they just need reasonable grounds to believe that yeah. the offense was committed. So it's a very low bar they don't get to hear the entire body of evidence. And in fact, this is not even, um, like this is poor, uh, um, I can't remember the name of your client, Laura Bell? Laura, Laura Beth. Laura Beth. Laura Beth is trying to adduce evidence of a, an incident that occurred, uh, what, 15 years prior? Yes, yeah. Um, 15 years prior on paper to a visa officer Um, You know, the fact that she was able to produce an affidavit from the other party is somewhat miraculous, and not just an affidavit but one where they actually they absolved the person of the guilt like this is like the golden carrot like this was evidence like I don't know I've never seen somebody able to produce this like this was like slam dunk evidence like nobody can get this kind of information and so. and know, even know, despite
1: that, they, even in spite of yeah, that, you yeah.
2: know, and that she had the means to finance the judicial review application and the wherewithal to realize that this is something worth being challenged on the salary of a living caregiver, like it just kind of blows your mind. Like this is the the extent that she was put, like the lengths that she was put to when she had put together such a good defense of this, um, of this challenge is really um, it's pretty, it's pretty mind boggling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this has real effect on her people's lives, right? Like she was waiting for her PR for six years, you know, and, and it's, You know, for no reason whatsoever, and apart from her family for so long, and you know, it's just these decisions have huge impact on people's lives, and a lot of people can't do anything about it. So you know, she's lucky that she would, you know, knew that she could do a JR and had the the resources to do a JR, but a lot of people can't, and they're just. And this was a
2: decision made in 2021, so she's still not reunited with the family, and probably won't be for. Yeah. you know, months and months, if not yeah. more. So because it'll still it still goes back for
1: redetermination, right? So she's still this isn't really the end of the road for her.
2: No, not in not in the least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's go through the manual, and I'm just going to pull out some, um, I guess, clauses from it. This is ENF two, which is enforcement manual two that visa officers use for um, enforcement determinations. For some reason, it's no longer public on the IRCC website. It used to be. Uh, If you Google it, though, there's all sorts of places, including my blog and I think the CBA that have uh, published it for people to download. So it's Section 3.5. The committing and act provisions are not to be used where a conviction has been registered and where the appropriate evidence of a conviction has been obtained. Uh, As part of Canada's international commitment to combat transnational crime, the policy intent is applying the provision in applying the provisions is first and foremost to deny entry into Canada and thereby prevent Canadian territory being used as a safe haven by persons who are subject to criminal proceeding in a foreign jurisdiction or are fleeing from such proceedings. And I think that's kind of understandable. Like they don't mm-hmm. want
2: yeah.
0: granting people who are fugitives. Definitely wasn't the situation in your case where it was no. a 15-year-old dismissed charge. Um, The principal application of the provisions is to deny entry into Canada to persons against whom there is evidence of criminal activity that could result in a conviction if there was a prosecution in Canada. Good judgment is to ensure that the objectives of the act are supported in applying these provisions, which, as I think, Deanna, you were saying, really just turns the visa officer into prosecutor, judge, and jury in trying to determine without a trial, whether an act Mm -hmm. was convicted.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and my feeling, I I don't know. um, I'm sure you um, too will also have other anecdotes to share. Um, My experience has been that they are um, fundamentally ill-equipped for this. um, Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the other part of it is that they're not subject to things that normal, Um, prosecutors, judges and juries are subject to things like the statute of limitations. So sometimes Mm -hmm. they're speaking about incidents that occurred, not just, you know, in 2006, but sometimes back in the 1980s, where the ability of the parties to get any kind of evidence um, is almost impossible. you know, where there's no ability to subpoena the other party to show that these incidents didn't occur. Like, um, and so it really does put them at a massive disadvantage. Um, They can't do anything to compel anybody to come to their defense in the way that Mm -hmm. they could if they were actually subject to a jury trial. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I have other examples, but I'm sure that you do as well. I'm just interested in sort of, hearing from both of you in terms of what your experiences are about um, putting the visa post in this kind of position where they get to make these sorts of determinations.
0: For me, I've most encountered it with Indian nationals and Mm -hmm. first information reports. And so what those are um, is in India, or at least in Punjab, which is where I've encountered this the most, um, possibly only in Punjab, but I assume it's the same elsewhere, is that the way a charge gets started is a complainant reports something to police and that complaint gets reported in the first person uh, and it's often pages. Like it reads as if someone has gone to a police station and is just pouring their heart out, speaking as quickly as they can. Right. Um, and from that, you know, three to four pages of a statement, the police will at the top say, you know, here are some charges uh, that we think apply. Um, and ironically, I have this open because I am I have another one of these types of cases. Uh, so they'll just say at the start that uh, somebody has one that I've seen arise is Section 498A of the Indian Penal Code, which says that... Um, husband or relative of husband of a woman subjecting her to cruelty. So you'll read this three to four page narrative uh, by a woman about how awful a man was or her husband or his family was allegedly to her, often in the context of a dowry payment or trying to claim Mm -hmm. back a dowry. And at the top, they'll say, based on this statement, here is the charge. And I've seen it applied uh, in numerous immigration Appeal Division, Immigration Division, and Visa Office decisions, where that document alone will serve as evidence that an offense was committed, even if it's ultimately dropped or Indian proceedings, Mm -hmm. or the Indian authorities decide not to proceed. Um, And it would be the equivalent of, in Canada, someone being found to be guilty based on reading the police officer's handwritten notes at the scene of an offense is what I equate it to. And usually once this is all pointed out, um, I've actually had really good success with getting the visa office or the IRB to determine, okay, well, this isn't sufficient grounds, Mm -hmm. but unless you know the whole context behind the first information report, you might read that Mm -hmm reasonably somewhat at first glance as being the equivalent of charges approved by the crown in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's that, um, that's the context where I see this the most.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in our, in our case or in our office, the case I worked on, it was, it was similar to Laura Beth. Like it was um, cases from the Manila visa office where we saw officers kind of um, incorrectly uh, Applying, I guess, their authority in this that they've been given. Um, I think Raj had a case, um, had a Uman, uh in Canada, and in that one, um, they were charges from 1989 and 1993, and you know they had been dismissed. But this, in this case, the the um, uh, client didn't have any evidence because it was so long ago. Uh, all they had was their their NBI clearance certificate mm-hmm. um, and their written account saying that you know, this didn't happen. Um, but there was nothing else there. Mm -hmm. Um, other than the order, I think from the court saying that the, the charge was dismissed. Um, so, you know, even in that case, the federal court found that the officers couldn't say that he was criminally inadmissible because there wasn't actually any evidence, um, to say that the dismissal of the charges weren't uh, weren't speaking to the merits right um you know uh, prima facie a dismissal means it didn't happen you know unless there's some contrary evidence that's really there that points to that you know that there's still merits to these charges so even in that case the, the federal court you know found that the reasoning of the of the office was was unreasonable mm-hmm. um And I think we also had another uh, case, again, out of Manila, where we got consent from DOJ. But uh, similarly, it was, I think it was uh, dismissed charges from the 90s. uh, I think, yeah, the 90s. And and in that case, too, there wasn't that much evidence. Like, Laura Beth is kind of like just the golden case, you know, where she had all that evidence. Otherwise, you know, often people don't have anything to show for Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, So... You know, in that case, same thing. You know, the, the visa Office just. Um, I think you know, giving them that authority is kind of dangerous. It's it's you know, they don't have in they don't have the maybe the knowledge or the experience or you know the resources to to understand what the law around this is, right? So it, that's why these decisions happen. Um, so it's a bit dangerous, but I don't know how else. You deal with it because you obviously don't want people with with charges that are dismissed not on you know on their merits yeah in, right so it's, it's just a it's a difficult situation
2: for sure one of the ones that I found so challenging and I don't know if either of you have experienced this is that in Canada um it's um it's taken for granted that in order for a criminal offense to occur there needs to be both the mens rea and the actus rea like you have mm-hmm. to book Do the thing that is the criminal activity, but you also have the, you have to have the motive, you have to have the, not the motive, you have to have the intention to commit the crime. So this one always comes up for me where the crime is something like perjury. Mm -hmm. And I I come across a lot of perjury allegations, especially from the Philippines, and I I mentioned this to you before we started recording, which is that. In the Philippines, I find that um, just their way of doing documentation. There's a lot of affidavit requirements on things. Mm-hmm. So, just for example, like um, if you if you de- if you register a birth late, um, like beyond the particular window of time, then they need you to sign an affidavit saying yes, the facts in this birth registration are accurate. And there's another one that comes up a lot, which is that. Typically, when you get married in the Philippines, you need to have a marriage license. But if you've been living together for a year, Mm -hmm. you don't need a marriage license and you can just get married without a marriage license. And it's like there's some article that you can get married under without it. But they make you swear an affidavit in order to get around the marriage license requirement. And I've had a lot of allegations where they've said you needed a marriage license, but you signed this affidavit. Mm. Um, And it was inappropriate. And so they've made perjury allegations when they see that that requirement was done inappropriately. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so, but in one case of mine, this was a long time ago, but um, they had sworn the affidavit, but like, I actually had produced a video of them signing this affidavit and my client had traveled to the Philippines for her wedding. And she would like literally like somebody had arranged the whole wedding because she was living in Canada. She was a caregiver and they, they traveled, you know, her whole family had made all the arrangements. She showed up, you know, they were like, all you have to do is like, show up. We'll have it all organized for you. She was a caregiver. So she like showed up and like the video showed, they just put papers in front of her and she signed them. Right. While they were taking pictures of her, she was in her wedding dress. Right. We tried to say she couldn't have had the intention to commit course, perjury because yeah. she was like posing for her wedding pictures. Right? You have yeah. 36,
0: you, you have committing offense cases based on this? Many, <laughs> many, many.
2: Yeah. Okay. And I've had to I've had to get let people landed on humanitarian and compassionate grounds to overcome oh. 36 C's. And they, there was a period where there was like a rash of 36 C allegations on perjury mm-hmm. for um, for both the delayed registration affidavits and for the um the overcoming the um overcoming the and they would do it because they would say well you signed this period this um, affidavit but I know you didn't live together because mm-hmm. your address histories show you were living in different countries mm-hmm. for the period of time that you would have been common law like they went to this extent Manila Gosh. went on a, on a tear with this thing for a long period of time and we, this was when I was at the West Coast Domestic Workers Association. We had probably 30 cases like this. And there was just like...
0: <laughs> so instead of pursuing it on, say, misrep on whether they live together, they turn it into whether a criminal offense was committed in the Philippines?
2: Yeah. Wow. And Holy we actually smokes. had one client that we didn't we weren't able to succeed. Um, it Actually, they, it, what, they took it all the way to an admissibility hearing. And they uh, we, I think we even lost the removal order appeal, if I recall. This was many years ago now yeah
0: that's uh you know i don't know who it was on our podcast that used the word first principles but it's the statement that I it's this term that i've really taken to heart and it's like if you go back to first principles me, act, this
2: is my favorite there's phrase no yeah i use this all you the use time, it all the time. Sure maybe it was you so that
0: you um, i'm pretty sure i i yeah but like the criminality <laughs> provisions out. are supposed to like be that's to not the, the point the of them no. Of no 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 right, no it's turned into an unwieldy thing of its own. Um, Especially when you get into the manuals where it talks about where it should be, uh, when to use it. If an officer Mm -hmm. is, so this is 3.8, an officer is in possession of intelligence or other credible information that a person committed a crime outside Canada. The person is subject of a warrant, charges are pending. Person has been charged, but the trial is not concluded. The person is fleeing prosecution. Um, all of these are examples of where I think like, yeah, this makes sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, the, yeah, For um, sure.
0: When not yeah. to use it. In most cases, when authorities indicate they would not lay a charge or drop the charges, the trial is concluded and no conviction results um, or the act was committed in Canada. But then there's this section of the manual where it gets into this weird uh, kind of the issue that we've raised, which is the officers then being told to become judge, jury Right. And prosecutor. Um, and it's these provisions cannot be used where the person has been acquitted. Similarly, when a court has made a finding of not guilty, the process and the decision will be respected and negate any reasonable grounds to believe that the person committed the offense. However, if a foreign investigating authority decides not to lay or proceed with charges in a country whose criminal justice concepts are Similar to ours, it should not be assumed that a crime was not committed or that it was insufficient evidence to obtain a conviction. Officers should also recognize that a decision by a local policing authority not to prosecute is often a result of considerations that are specific to the criminal justice context and not necessarily consistent with the objectives of managing access to Canada. I don't know how officers are supposed to deal with that last (laughs) paragraph.
2: So I yeah. think that's the part that caused uh, the kind of reasoning that went into the GCMS notes that were referenced yeah. in Garcia. Yeah, it gives too much license in my view. Yeah, where I, I do agree. see
0: going back to mens rea where it does arise, um, and it's part of why we should start doing more criminal law type decisions in the podcast is that in the like dangerous driving context, um, you need to demonstrate like having the mens rea of having intended to have a market departure or something. There's a Supreme Court of mm-hmm. Canada decision called WA, which I've actually cited in immigration cases involving uh, dangerous driving convictions in the United States and seeing the federal courts say the raw principles of mens rea do have to be applied. Mm-hmm. Um, where you also see committing an offense used in the context of Americans is where there's a drunk driving pled down to reckless driving or Mm -hmm. some other, you know, some offense that doesn't have the term or doesn't imply that alcohol was involved, but the initial charge involved alcohol. And you'll see the officers use it um, there to say, even if it was pled down, we're going to equate this to uh, drinking and driving. Uh Yeah. Yeah. The other time I saw it arise in the US context was when an asylum claimant in the US said that uh, part of why he was fleeing a gang in, um, well, actually in the United States, was that he had purchased drugs from them. And even though charges, and he said this in his asylum hearing in the US, and he was unsuccessful, but Canadian immigration officials uh, determined that. The fact that he had made that statement was sufficient evidence that he had committed a crime and uh, excluded him. Hmm. Now have either of you read, um, and if you have a computer, it's worth pulling up because I thought it would be the biggest thing in 2020 from an immigration perspective to talk about and then COVID Mm -hmm. hit, Uh, but it's (laughs) Leo v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration 2020 FC-59. Um, And what this decision was, an IRB decision, which almost takes, when you read it, you almost think, wow, I wish it was only the committing an offense provisions, because in this case, um, and it just occurred to me to raise this, I didn't mean to spring this on you, was using Section 341E to find someone inadmissible, which is Mm -hmm. a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds, for engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the life or safety of persons in Canada. And so in that case, it's one that occurs inside Canada. It's a domestic assault case um, where charges are ultimately not pursued. And I'll just read paragraph three of this decision, the federal court decision. The board also had considerable evidence before it in relation to several domestic assaults by Mr. Delio on another woman. That woman testified the board, but contrary to her earlier statements made to police and as testified by Star- to by Staff Sergeant Jones, she denied any abuse. Notwithstanding this recantation of her statements to police, the board found reasonable grounds to believe that Mr. DiLeo had assaulted and caused injury to the woman on a number of occasions. Because no convictions had been entered in relation to these offence, Paragraph 36 of the Immigration Refugee Protection mm. Act had no application. In the result, the minister proceeded to have Mr. D'Leo declared inadmissible under Section 341 e That paragraph states, under the National Security and Admissibility Provisions, a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for engaging in acts of violence that would or might wow. endanger the lives or safety of mm. persons in Canada. Ultimately, Justice Barnes um, determined that this was an inappropriate use of the that provision. And he cited, actually, I guess there was another decision called Mason v. Canada, also from the Immigration and Refugee Board in Vancouver, um, where in that decision, it was uh, somebody who discharged firearms and injured two people and uh, two charges of attempted murder were laid. However, the charges were stayed and CBSA and Vancouver pursued them under national security for um, whether section or for endangering, uh, engaging in acts of violence that could endanger the safety of Canadians. Both Mm -hmm. decisions were certified questions on their way to the federal court of appeal. I don't know if either appeal has been heard yet because of COVID, Mm -hmm. but that has the potential a completely, well, I mean, it has the potential to add uh, the ability for dismiss charges in Canada to still result in inadmissibility. Ironically, if they're convicted, then they're just inadmissible for committing a crime. If it's dismissed, they can be pursued for inadmissibility for threatening national security.
2: Wow, that is wild. Yeah. I hadn't read that one. Um, you've probably been emailing me about it, Steve, and I just didn't <laughs> pick up on that one. But um, that is a really um, it's just so vaguely drawn um, that that it seems to like anything that falls under either of the 36 provi- either of the 36 provisions would seem that it could be captured. under 34 uh 1e you would think yeah um anything that like has any public like any person who could be harmed um the lives of or safety of persons in canada it's it's immensely broad yeah um i mean obviously we would need to look back into the operations manual and see what interpretive guidance there is there but um but anyways you said that um the, the final outcome of that case was that it was not found to apply. Yeah, um, both uh,
0: in both cases, the judges at the federal court said it wasn't appropriate, but they punted okay. it to the federal court of appeal.
2: Or they at least certified questions. We just don't know whether or not they've been pursued. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, and whether, I mean, with the absence of the federal court of appeals determination, it's still possible that uh, the Vancouver I guess PREC, the Vancouver and London enforcement center may continue to attempt this because in both cases yeah. I think the IRB found that uh, it was reasonable like did exclude them.
2: Yeah, exactly. Hey, well, I, I mean it's sort of like what I what I was saying about the the issue of the the 361C that the sort of mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen this where you know you do see sort of trending of decision making where mm-hmm. you know I saw one of those those um I mean maybe it's more a situation in terms of no I, I don't think so I mean I was saying that that you know in Manila I saw one of those perjury decisions and all of a sudden there was like a flurry of them coming through my office um the same way you know like we've talked in 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 other podcasts where you know um at the port of entry you'll see them you know, somebody coming to try and flagpole a visitor who comes in as a visitor and then suddenly co- goes back two weeks later and tries to make a work permit application that suddenly you start seeing misrep allegations being made mm-hmm. against people. You know, you'll see like a big trend where you'll suddenly see 20 of them coming into your office in the course mm-hmm. of a couple of months. So um, maybe this is something that you'll start, we'll start seeing that there's more of these 341 e allegations coming through um, just as, you know, in general, I think we've been talking on the podcast about this sort of growth of a more enforcement-minded approach mm-hmm. to, you know, policing the Canadian borders and all of this sort of thing, um, and this might just be our latest trending on on this topic.
1: I think if you take a contextual and purposive purpose analysis of it, though, I mean, that should just apply to national security, like, not small fences, you know what I mean? Like, it's just... A, I agreed I, it's I you know I really think that we shouldn't depart from that it's it's being definitely wrongly applied
2: I agree with you entirely Sonia but I think that one thing that we've been talking about uh, it's become a bit of a theme is that um, I don't remember what was the context that we were talking about this Steve but just about how um, there does seem to be again a trending towards mechanisms that allow for. Mm-hmm for easier prosecution, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, what was the subject we were talking about, Steve, where we're saying that um, these mechanisms have been broadly drawn with the purpose of making it easier for enforcement, you know, and mm-hmm. it does seem to be that the court is somewhat responsive to the idea that when it's very hard for CBSA to make a case that the, the court seems to be giving some uptake to that, mm-hmm, you know, as mm-hmm. if that is, like, an overall policy, mm. Um, mm. you know, that, that, that is right. a guiding principle in some way. Like, I, for, right. for me, the ease of prosecution doesn't seem to me to be, like, but again, my, my point here is that, um, depending on the way that, the, the, the lens that the interpreter comes at the, right at, with, to the act, I mean, they could say that, protecting the um, protecting Canada is the lens through which we should be looking at this and making Mm -hmm. prosecution and making you know Mm -hmm. um, preventing entry to Canada a a priority um, Mm -hmm. should allow for easier yeah prosecution I don't know I mean it's certainly not my approach but no yeah
0: I can't remember what we were talking about. Peter Edelman used to talk about how if you uh, if he had if he could put someone on the stand within 20 questions he could get them to acknowledge uh, that they had committed some action that equates to an offense in Canada yeah. um, like the big one and I mentioned that I was going to ask this before we started recording was going back to that CLEBC event that I spoke at with the department of justice several years ago, we posed the question, if somebody, uh, if your client tells you that, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, they drove, they think they drove drunk home, Mm -hmm. uh, but they were never caught and they went from the pub to the house. They may have been over 08 Um, Are they inadmissible to Canada for having committed a crime? And is it misrepresentation for them to drive into Canada and not disclose it? Mm -hmm. And what was interesting at that event, and that's an event with probably two-thirds Department of Justice IRB lawyers, one-third private bar, is there was this huge split in the audience where all of the private bar basically went, no, that'd be ridiculous for uh, somebody who drove once and never um, yeah, never was caught. And almost everyone uh, who worked for Department of Justice or IRB said, yes, that is something that has to be disclosed. Mm. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: It's just, I think that, that it's kind of, ties into what Deanna was saying about it, it comes from the lens that you're the interpreter is looking at things right so obviously the private bar has a different lens than than DOJ um wow because for me it would obviously be that that they wouldn't have to disclose for me it feels yeah. like a very obvious answer
0: mm-hmm. I mean yeah. we once dealt with someone we had to do a, we had to do a rehab application for someone who got a ticket in Alaska because they were driving a boat that had mud obscuring the license plate on it when they were stopped by boating police. And that was a ticketable offense. But it turns out that failing to comply with any part of the Fisheries Act is a hybrid offense. So -hmm. they wound up having to do a rehab application because they were inadmissible to Canada for having driven a boat with mud on it that obscured the boat license. Uh So it's you know, you can just broaden the DUI to something like that, you know, you have to declare every time that you drove through mud and your license plate was obscured.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And another one too, like, I mean, this is slightly different, but if you're a trusted traveler, like you hold a Nexus card, mm -hmm. if you travel with ibuprofen that you bought in a store in Mexico um, you're meant to declare that you're carrying that from Mexico back into Canada, you know, and failure to do so um, means that you're violating the terms of the Trusted Traveller Program and could cause suspension of your um, of your nexus privileges, um, things like that as well. So, I mean, um, in terms of like, I, I get that this is the standard to which you're expected to be held, but the number of like... Um, i would love to know if there's any nexus card traveler who hasn't um, violated accidentally um, Mm -hmm. one of the terms of that trusted traveler program if they didn't change their address like the very day that they that they (laughs) changed that they moved their house you know like i mean again there are so many provisions Mm -hmm. um so so yeah i mean some of them seem quite obvious, but I think that standard of perfection um, is is much more difficult to actually meet than than mm-hmm. one might think. And I mean, I'm not making up that example just to be um, silly. I'm actually handling an appeal um, oh. on those exact facts where somebody has been their 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 membership has been suspended. So,
0: <laughs> are you doing so, a nexus appeal or an Because I guess it a is nexus a nexus be- appeal. Act, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, a nexus appeal. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, I think back to uh, like university days driving down to the U.S. with some friends who may have had fake IDs and, you know, the drinking age limit is 21 oh, yeah. in the U.S. All of them now, I mean, they have the right to enter Canada because they're citizens. But if there was a permanent resident in the group mm. 20 years later, Do they have an obligation to disclose whatever that would equate to forgery or identity, but probably forgery, just having a forged license. Like is this that's a good way of putting it, Deanna, like a standard of perfection.
2: For sure. And those Um, people in the room that said, yes, they need to disclose. Did they never mm -hmm. drink anything when they were a minor? Did they disclose that when they entered the United States that they Mm -hmm. committed an offense when they drank underage? Like, Mm -hmm. so I love it. I mean, it's a great theory, but um, in actual practice, do people do that? Um, It's very Mm -hmm. easy to say when you're a cozy Canadian citizen, you know, yes, absolutely. Everything needs to disclose. But like, it's a fishing expedition. Like, am Mm -hmm. I going to go down to the U.S. and be like, hey, Border official. So I drank when I was a minor. Um, I think maybe I had two drinks and I drove my daughter to the, you know, to, to her friend's house. Is that okay? Like, I mean, honestly, these are, I mean, the border officer would be looking at me like, Lady, get out of my queue! Like I got <laughs> work to do. So, so I'm not sure that CBSA actually wants me to tell them every sin I've committed. Because no, like this know? is every time
0: at a nightclub that I started dancing with someone without explicitly asking for permission first. This is every time. Yes, exactly. I'm not
2: sure, but maybe I—I'm not sure I asked her. You know, well, like, and
0: then yeah, like the uncertainties with law. Like this is every 100% time going to and from a driving range with a restricted firearm that I went and got gas it still not 100% you know like clear whether that's allowed or not or yeah
2: for sure every shoplifting thing that every kid did you know like i mean i don't even wanna put together a list of the stuff that i would need to put on my list and i'm certainly not oh, going to yeah. talk about it on the podcast but uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> every time you got angry and you honked your horn at someone and does that because that's, that's the thing it's not yeah, even whether pub- it is a crime that's a public it's,
2: nuisance yeah, yeah. well mean,
0: and there's all the incidents like in um with distracted driving in bc this is a prevention oh my goodness like yeah that case where they went after someone who what was it they had the phone in the glove compartment but it was playing music on bluetooth and yep, ultimately, a judge right. said that that wasn't distracted driving, but like, suppose it had been found to be. And then you're mm-hmm. sitting back going, OK, like
2: if I were presenting that CLE that you're referencing for all those people that held up their hand, I'd be like, <laughs> I don't believe you. I'm sorry, but I don't. You know, like I'm going to put them on the stand and be yeah, like, just- <laughs> OK, so did you ever did you ever do this? <laughs>
0: you know, yeah, so it, it will it was, be
2: a public shaming for me. So.
0: It's the well, and this might have been what you had referenced before that I had mentioned once where it's living in a society where laws are drafted so broadly Mm. that the state theoretically could go after anyone for having committed a crime and convicted them or convict them yes um yeah so i yeah
2: yeah there's one other thing i want to add to this whole notion of the committing the offense thing and mostly because of the case that sonia litigated Mm -hmm. um which is that Um, There are cases where um, they do have the spouse dead to rights, and I have found a number of those cases. Mm. Um, And I'm raising this only because I do so much work with the Filipino community and so many, um, what I have discovered is a lot of, um, this is maybe a bit sad, but the the fact of the matter is some of these relationships um, exist um, and have continued more because um, the clients feel that they don't have any alternative because they live in a society where divorce is not an option. Right. Um, And so um, what I have done with many clients is that when they understand what the potential consequences are of an inadmissibility finding against their spouse, um, that they actually want to know whether or not they have the option of leaving that spouse out. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, And I mean, specifically, if one spouse is found to be criminally inadmissible, the the applicant uh, themselves becomes inadmissible for having an inadmissible family member. And my experience with that has been that if you then, if you get a a procedural fairness letter against the spouse, and then you say, oh, by the way, I wanna get a divorce, I get a lot of pushback from immigration saying oh you're just doing this because they're inadmissible and so i've actually had to litigate that issue numerous times because Mm -hmm. um, that's that's their right um the fact that the person is inadmissible doesn't mean you can't decide well yeah um if they're inadmissible and they're going to drag down my application that's the that's the straw that broke the camel's back um but i have found that Immigration doesn't like that and I have had Mm -hmm. many refusals and then JRs that led to consents. Um, So I'm just saying that um, just generally because um, I just think people should be aware that that yes, immigration may well question, why are you divorcing only after a PFL? um, But I just paper it really well and I often do get a refusal and then I almost always get an immediate consent if I've explained clearly, like, this is a divorce, I understand that it might be coming late in the day, but um, it's their right, of course, of course. yeah.
0: So I I don't know if others have
2: experienced that, but uh, from
0: the Philippines years ago, where she, she, the principal applicant was, quote, unquote, married to someone in the Philippines. mm -hmm. And the reason I say, quote, unquote, was because it turned out that he was married to someone else, And she didn't know. And it was never disputed that she didn't know. Yeah. But he was now inadmissible to Canada for bigamy. Yeah. And they went after her for being not the spouse of someone who was inadmissible, but the common law partner of someone who was inadmissible for bigamy, even though she didn't know that that he was married to someone else. And then they said that she was only trying to leave the common law partnership because of the immigration issue.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, And so then it was an attempted divorce of convenience that wasn't going to be recognized.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I literally litigated that two or three times, um, before I finally got them to, um, concede that, yeah, divorce for any reason is your absolute right. But, yeah. uh, um, to be like, yes, your, you, your spouse has defrauded you. And now you're inadmissible because of <laughs> it. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? But... Highly disproportionate. <laughs> like, I don't know. Oh, man. But yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a thing. So, uh, that just Funny made me game. think
1: of a totally different thing, but um, of uh, you know how there's um, I think Raj talked about this on, on when he was on, but um, of overseas work permit refusals for 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 spouses of study permit holders. So it just made me think of that because in that a simple solution is to just divorce your spouse. Mm-hmm. And and in, to those clients we've actually said, hey, you know this person will probably drag down your PR application if you don't want to go through a JR and everything and you don't want the five-year mistrap bar you know you can leave your spouse but in all those cases they've said no like this is a genuine marriage I'm not leaving my spouse yeah I mean that 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 points to just maybe maybe think of that that you know those that's an option but uh, they don't take it because you know they're actually in a committed relationship but the visa office is saying that their relationship isn't genuine so (laughs) yeah like, why would they be going through all of this if it's not genuine? They would have exactly. a long time ago. Yeah, so. <laughs>
0: Something else. Yeah. It sure is. Yeah. 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 So, I think are you going to still dabble in immigration, Sonia?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I'm still academically quite interested in it. Uh, you know, I had the Garcia case, and I also had um, the Gomez Perez case that came out, and I think the decision came out in late 2020, um, where this is one of my, again, a case I'm very passionate about, but where his, um, he was a PR for I think over 20 years. And, and in his absence, uh, his refugee status, his PR status had been cessated. Um, so, and he was self representative throughout this. So, I mean, things like that, like I'm just so interested in, in immigration law, that I'm still going to, you know, academically, pursue it and, and read up on it and read the cases because the stuff that I've litigated in it, it has been very interesting. Like even in that case, like I felt like I had a, bit, a big impact on his life. Um, you know, he he was, he was came to me saying, I don't know what's going on. Like I, I thought I, I applied for citizenship and then they tell me I'm not a PR anymore. And I'm like, I looked through everything and I'm like, You've, your status was cessated like, because you went back to Cuba three times and you can't. Um, so, you know, we tried to get it reopened, that didn't work. So we junior the initial cessate and we junior the reopening. Um, in that I also had Justice McAfee and 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 thankfully um, at the we we won at the JR of the initial cessate, and you know, he found that it was you know uh, unreasonable to 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 make that decision in his absence, uh, especially because he had apparently called and left a voicemail. Uh, to IRB and they just ignored that and they just said well we didn't get anything in writing so you know we can't find uh, I... you we can't serve you with a notice of hearing but you know you found him fine when you serve him with his prob. but anyways like you know so, <laughs> so goodness so, so you know it was just uh, you know things like that like I, I definitely think I'm still going to be interested in this stuff um, you know especially procedural fairness related issues like that case really brought me to be very interested in you know breaches procedural fairness and and um, case law on that so
2: yeah, well, it's no, not I, out of your system yet so hopefully we'll no. we'll get, we'll get <laughs> you back over to the dark side huh? yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sure if the real yeah. estate uh, real estate <laughs> board or the real estate council is listening they're thinking oh man, why did we approve this? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no I still have an academic interest so I'm like, definitely yeah. gonna still write about it, still write about it, still read about it.
0: <laughs> cool well thanks for yeah. coming on today we'll let you know when it's been uh, uploaded
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i'll be sure Thank to write you. to raj and say oh you don't know how to keep good ones do you
1: oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really wonderful chatting with you both uh, i really enjoyed this good yeah. excellent awesome.